scholars agree that it is actually the Apostle John who is the author of this book. That's one of the twelve. In fact, one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Church tradition also supports this idea, and so do clues within the book itself. Although the Apostle John is mentioned some 20 times in the other gospel accounts, in this book he's not mentioned by name even once. In fact, the author of the book often refers or likes to refer to himself as the Apostle whom Jesus loved. Look at chapter 13, verse 23. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. That's They're in the upper room celebrating the Passover meal together. And um, here's this disciple whom Jesus loved leaning against Jesus. Then in chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw that his mother and the disciple whom he loved, now at this occasion, Jesus hanging on the cross, looks down and he sees this disciple whom he loves standing nearby and he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. We find it again in chapter 20, verse 2, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Chapter 21, verse 7, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And then finally again in chapter 21 and verse 20. Evidence points to this account being written some 50 years following Christ's crucifixion. So around 80 to 90 AD. And just for comparison's sake, the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark would have been around 50 AD and Luke around 60 AD. So John is considerably, a time has passed by the time he actually sits down to write this gospel, and is probably at least aware of the other three gospel accounts. And when John sits down to write, he's in the city of Ephesus, and it seems that he has a wide range of recipients in mind, both Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, believers and unbelievers both. In John chapter 20, verse 31, and you may want to turn there. This is a verse you might want to underline, because here we find John explaining exactly why he's even writing this book. Beginning at verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that, purpose statement, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the reason why John is writing. And that being the case, I suppose you can guess what the key word is in the Gospel of John. Believe. Pisteo in the Greek. Believe. It's found actually 98 times in just... 21 chapters, the word believe. One author warns us, as I was studying this week, I came across this warning. Uh, It is, in talking about the Gospel of John, the most difficult gospel for most expositors to preach and teach. I read that after I submitted a preaching... No, that's not true. But 
I did submit a preaching calendar proposal to the elders at our last meeting that identified John will be our anchor book moving forward. By anchor book, I mean that that's going to be the text that we turn to on Sunday mornings until we make our way through the entire gospel. So we'll be here for a while, folks, and uh, we want to make our way through the gospel. When I first started thinking about a preaching calendar, I was still in Florida at the time, and I thought that we would continue through the, the, the book of Joshua. We started there, working through the transition. It just made sense to me to can continue going, but as I thought and prayed, and, uh, my mind kept going to the Gospel of John. And part of that is when I was serving as the Eastern Canada Superintendent, our President, uh, Dr. Bill Fiji of the AGC, had made a comment once when we were in a situation where we were dealing with a, a church, and he said, I just wish young men, when they arrive at a new church, would Focus on Jesus and preach the gospel. And so that was in my mind. And then I was out for breakfast with the pastor of our church in Florida, uh, Jerry Ragg. And he was just mentioning when he started at Grace Emanuel some 15 years ago, he started by preaching the gospel of John. And for two reasons. One, that it would allow them to focus on Jesus. And two, that it would get them on the same page theologically. So we'd be speaking the same language, and we'd know where we were theologically. And so with those kinds of influences, I thought uh, it's going to be a difficult challenge, but here we go. John chapter 1. The family decided to take a trip for a summer vacation to the Carlsbad Canyons, or caverns, in New Mexico. Uh, to be more specific, these... Uh, Carlsberg Canyon National Park is is um, in New Mexico. It's in the Chihuahua Desert. And in this park, there's over 100 caves or caverns that have, nature has created in limestone. And so they took their, their son, who was 11, and daughter, who was 7, and they were excited about the opportunity. It was a great adventure, time to discover. And as the um, tour guide reach that point in the cavern where they're well below the, the earth's surface, um, he decided to turn out the lights so that they could experience that complete darkness. Of course, the little seven-year-old became frightened, and it's dark that kind of darkness where you can't see your own hand in front of your face, and she began to cry. And her 11-year-old brother came to the rescue with some words of comfort. He said, don't cry. Somebody here knows how to turn on the lights. And I sense that that is what the Apostle John is doing here in his gospel. In the midst of the darkness of the first century, John is turning on the lights. So keep your finger in John chapter 1, but flip over with me to Romans chapter 1. This is a passage that, if you're not familiar with it, I sure hope we become familiar with it over the months and years ahead. This passage provides one of the best commentaries on the world in which we live and work and play that I can find in Scripture. Beginning at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, look at these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Down to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved man. In a world that suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, Christians need to reinforce their understanding, appreciation, and confidence in the gospel. We can reinforce our understanding, appreciation, and confidence in the gospel by becoming aware of the foundational truths related to the gospel beginnings as they're presented here in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Father, thank you for this written revelation of your plans and purposes, your person and your intentions and desires for us, your people. As we study this morning, give us ears that hear and eyes to see your truth. Help us not to be hearers only, but doers. Give us courage and strength to live our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. By the power of your spirit, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So becoming aware of the foundational truths underpinning the gospel's beginning will reinforce our understanding, appreciation, and confidence in the gospel. Foundational truth number one. The word existed in eternity past. Look at verse one. In the beginning was the word. Let's just do a quick survey of John's opening words with those other three Gospels. Turn back to Matthew chapter 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now turn over to Mark chapter 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, 
just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah. Okay, so do you notice anything that's similar about those three openings? We've read through them, exposed those three Gospels. They all share a similar perspective on the life and ministry of Jesus. They begin with things like genealogies, ministry beginnings, and the historic setting. Jesus is presented as a historic figure, and that's why they're called the Synoptic Gospels because they share that similar point of view when it comes to presenting their unique perspective on the life and ministry of Jesus. John's account is totally different. I read this week that 93% of the content found in the Gospel of John is not found in the Synoptics. So he presents unique material. Daryl Bach, New Testament scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary, offers, offers the following explanation. The synoptics view Jesus from the earth up. John views Jesus from heaven down. I like that. Nowhere is that more evident than in this opening five verses. Listen again, in the beginning was the Word. And I can't read that without my mind going back to Genesis chapter 1. And I don't think that's an accident. John is intentionally drawing his readers back through time to the very beginning, to a time prior to creation. Rather than in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, John writes... In the beginning was the Word. The Word was already there in the beginning. In other words, when the beginning began, the Word was already there. This is a pre-existing, preeminent Word, or logos. It's interesting that the, that John would would choose that particular word because it's. It's shrouded in all kinds of ambiguity. For the Jews, they would have made immediate associations to the word of God as presented in the Old Testament or the Torah. And then for the Greek philosophers, they would have thought, oh, he's talking about that reason, that impersonal principle governing the universe. So it seems that John used this word intentionally to to cast a wide net He wanted to engage people in this conversation, regardless of where they were coming from. He opened the conversation with a pre-existing, preeminent word. And connecting the pre-existing, preeminent word to the gospel beginnings reinforces our understanding, appreciation, and confidence in the gospel. Because the gospel is not 
some passing fad. And Lord knows that the evangelical church has been plagued over the years with all kinds of of trendy fads that have come and gone. But this gospel, the beginnings of this gospel, is rooted, founded, established on this pre-existing, preeminent word. D.A. Carson writes, because this word is divine, because this word, this divine self-expression existed in the beginning, one might suppose that it was either with God or nothing less than God himself. John insists that the word was both. And that brings us to the second foundational truth about the beginnings of this gospel. Notice, foundational truth number two, the word was intimately related to and yet distinct from God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And don't think too long about that because you get a headache, right? Oh, boy. The phrase, and the word was with God, is communicating more than a simple coexistence. This phrase, specifically the word with, is describing an active relationship with ongoing interaction. Kent Hughes explains in his commentary, literally, and he's talking about the phrase, the word was with God, can be translated, the word was continually toward God. The Father and the Son were continually face to face. The preposition with bears the idea of nearness along with a sense of movement toward God. Now, I know that you and I live in a, a day and age when face-to-face interactions have seemed to have lost some of their appeal. Like, why meet when we can tweet? Or FaceTime, or email, or text, or whatever. But surely we can all agree that when we give up on a face-to-face interaction, we lose something. Face-to-face interactions add something to interactions. Don't you agree? And according to this phrase, the Word of God, prior to the beginning, took full advantage of face-to-face interactions with God. But this little preposition, with, also implies distinction. Everything God was, the Word was. They shared the same attributes, and yet they remain distinct. Let's consider just for a moment some verses where this preposition is used. And you don't have to turn here, just listen as I read. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Jose, and Judah and Simon? Are they... Are not his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. So it's a a relationship. Are not the sisters with us? Mark chapter 14, verse 49. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. We are of good courage. I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. 
Philemon, verse 13, whom I wish to keep with me. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 4. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 2. And the life was manifest, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. The word translated with is used almost exclusively to describe a person-to-person interaction. And John, superintended by the Spirit of God, chose this particular word to describe the relationship of of God with the word. One commentator puts it this way, with indicates both equality and distinction, identity along with association. Well, in Florida, I developed quite an infection on one of my arms that needed to um, be addressed. And so the doctor sent me to the pharmacy to get some over-the-counter ointment to put on this um, infection. And when I went to the the drugstore, I was looking for polysporin. It was kind of, I grew up with it and knew that it was kind of a miracle working ointment when it came to getting rid of infection and, and promoting healing. But unfortunately, apparently in the States, they don't have polysporin. So I had to go to the counter and ask the, the pharmacist to come and, and help. So she took me to the area and there were, you know, a number of selections that I could have chosen. And she pointed them out and, and described them and and as I looked at them, I recognized the name brand and went to reach for it. And, and she said, well, you can, you can pay the extra $4 if you want, or you can just buy the store's brand, which is exactly the same thing, and save the $4. It has the same ingredients. Well, the word was basically the same thing as God. You can buy the name brand, or you can get the store brand. But they're the same thing. The same ingredients is in the tube. And the word was basically the exact same thing as God. In fact, John states in these verses, the word was God. So this is a divine word. And remember the expression as we were growing up, I don't think we were being sarcastic, but saying, she's so perfect, you can't tell the difference. Remember that one? Well, the word is distinct from God, but he is so close that you can't tell the difference between God and the word. Whatever God is, the word is. That's the point John's making. And connecting this divine word to the beginning of the gospel, reinforces our understanding, appreciation, and confidence in the gospel. From the very beginning, this gospel was a God thing. Thoroughly a God thing. Foundational truth number three. Everything owes its existence to the word. Notice verse three. All things came into being through him, And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So John makes an initial statement, and then he seems to throw it in reverse and back up and say exactly the same thing backwards. But the point is clear. 
Apart from the word, there is no creation. And the psalmist affirms a similar thought in Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So the first two foundational truths really talked about the word's relationship to God. And now this one switches and talks about the about its relationship to the material things around us. And look around. Apart from the word, none of this exists. We often sing about it. Oh Lord my God, when I can when I when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. Remember? When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from mountain lofty from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Apart from the word, none of this exists. Can I suggest that having creation as an accomplishment on your resume or CV is a game changer? Everything owes its existence to the word. All things came into being through him. This is a pre-existing, preeminent word. This is a divine word. And based on its accomplishments, this is a credible word. Or should I say, incredible word. Connecting this incredibly credible word to the beginnings of the gospel reinforces our appreciation and our confidence in that gospel. Foundational truth number four. Life and the light of men originate in the word. Verse four. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Is this another allusion to the Genesis account? Potentially. Certainly, it seems like John has... Genesis lingering in the back of his mind as he sits down to write his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. But that physical aspect of life has really been dealt with in verse 3. Apart from the word, there is no physical life. So it seems to me that John is moving in verses 4 to 5 to the spiritual aspect of life. The part of us that is designed to to live forever, either with God or separated from God. Life eternal. The Apostle John, later in his life, would write three small letters that are included in our canon of Scripture. In fact, in the first of these little letters, 1 John John read for us earlier. If you'll turn there to John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, it reads as follows. And and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. 
He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Remember the the purpose of John's gospel back in John chapter 20, verse 30, 31? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, eternal life. But without light, you and I are incapable of figuring this out. Remember Romans chapter 1 that we read earlier? We are all truth suppressors, born sinners through and through. And apart from God's intervention, we will naturally suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But take a sneak peek. I'll give you a sneak peek of verse 9 in John chapter 1. We'll come to that eventually, but let's take a sneak peek this morning. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. Enlightenment. Do you hear an echo from the Carlsbad Caverns? Don't cry. Somebody around here knows how to turn on the lights. The word can turn on the lights so you and I can see spiritual realities and then respond appropriately. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is a redemptive word. And connecting this redemptive word to the beginnings of the gospel will reinforce our understanding, help us appreciate it even more, and build our confidence in the gospel. Foundational truth number five. The light of men originating in the word dispels the darkness. Verse five. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now this contrast between light and darkness as representing the struggle between good and evil would not have been lost on John's original recipients. This is not a new concept. Light and darkness, good and evil, are locked in a struggle that continues a battle for our minds, our hearts, and our souls to this very day. In fact, this is the first time in these five verses that the present tense is used. And so what he's saying is this is this the light is continually shining in the darkness. Let's look at some other translations of this verse 5. I read from the New American Standard which says and the darkness did not comprehend it. The English Standard Version says, and the darkness has not overcome it. The New Living Translation says, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And the message says, the darkness couldn't put it out. 
The NASB may not offer the best translation on this particular occasion. I think I like the New Living Translation, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And that's true. When you think about it practically, darkness can't extinguish light. This is an unconquerable word. Connecting this unconquerable word with the gospel's beginning. It reinforces our understanding, appreciation, and confidence in the gospel. And our understanding, appreciation, and confidence in the gospel is established on the inextinguishable revelation of God originating before time began. The Logos. It's a preeminent, pre-existing word. It's a divine word. It's an incredibly credible word. It's a redemptive word. And it's an unquenchable word. These are the, the foundational truths underpinning the gospel's beginnings according to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The word, the world that the Logos engages and God loves to whom the Apostle John wrote and where you and I live and work and play is a, is a place of remarkable unbelief. Those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, they are strong. They are the majority. And they will try to extinguish the word but they will lose. You see, the gospel wins. Believe it. Share it. John chapter 1, verses 5, reinforces our understanding, our appreciation, and our confidence in this gospel. It's a winner. Believe it and share it. Let's pray together.